So I just thought before today's episode of The Reset Rebel kicks off uh, with me, Joe Yule, I wanted to just say hello and have a little catch up. We haven't had uh, a little chat before diving into a podcast for a wee while. And I know that, you know, most of the people that listen to this show are based in and around Europe, which is, of course, heading uh, in towards that uh, dreaded L word again uh, for many people. And my heart really has been affected um, by that kind of news and knowledge this week and a lot of my friends family members um, that don't you know they don't live here on the island with me in Ibiza um, they are really suffering and they're you know not looking forward um, to round two of staying at home and I thought well what can I what can I do what can I offer you um, if you are in one of those countries that might just make you feel a tiny bit better and you know I'm guessing if you are listening to this you have a fascination and a love and a deep connection just like I do to Ibiza otherwise um you know you wouldn't be listening and I know that you know when you're not here on the island or particularly when I'm not here on the island I just want to feel connected in some way shape or form and I was like well how how can I provide that feeling maybe you're at home and you're by yourself maybe you are you know in the familial home but you need to disconnect from uh, the family members and take some serious time for yourself and have a little bit of a self-care regime in place and what I think you know people not just me have discovered through lockdown is that routine is um, pretty pretty essential to kind of uh, making it through that kind of environment and that time of life Um, and I think that one thing for me that creates this real sense of connection and this real kind of um, sense of association is through smell and I recently met this incredible woman um, called Carolina Gambin and I haven't actually seen her um, for a wee while now but when I walked into a therapy room today I was reminded of that meeting because it smelt amazing um, and I saw one of her beautiful bottles of Aura Mist uh, lurking on the side of the shelves there. And I immediately just remembered the beautiful sense that she shared with me um, when I met her the very first time around. And it was kind of like a special moment um, to know that potentially I could actually share that with you um, through a very generous offer that we are going to be giving away um, here on the Reset Rebel podcast today, um, which is a free bottle of her radical self-love. And I think, you know, if ever there was a moment in time where we need to be giving ourselves, as I said, a little bit of a self-care routine, a little bit of extra love, a little bit of care and attention um, in our daily doings, rather than just, you know, waking up in the morning and going straight for the coffee Um, and you know just getting into the rhythm of our usual habits maybe it's just time just to have a little squirt of something that's going to remind you um, of how you feel when you're in Ibiza Um, that kind of connection to source and I know um, how I feel when I'm here and when I'm out and about and I'm in nature and I'm swimming in the sea every day and I'm going to the beach and I'm doing things that make me feel good life is very different but I know that obviously that isn't you know the kind of environment that any of us are in or experiencing when we're in um, when we're actually staying at home so I just thought how can I bring a little piece of Ibiza to you and it suddenly struck me that this was just a magic idea to give away 
um, very kindly because Carolina has agreed to do this uh, with us at the Reset Rebel to give away a bottle of her incredibly beautiful aura mist so that you can maybe wake up every morning and just do something completely different and reset your mind, reset your head and set a beautiful intention for the day ahead no matter if the rest of the day looks fairly similar and repetitive and boring you just have this little moment in the morning where you wake up and you squirt some of this magic uh, mist into the air and you just inhale a little sense of being on the white island now the particular um mist that we've chosen to give away is called radical self-love which i love the title of who doesn't want to give themselves some radical self-love so i really love the description of this particular mist and um it says to really love and be loved without conditions you need to be in love within yourself first wise words get centered and replenish your heart with self-respect presence and confidence in order to create healthy relationships with yourself and others. Now, in that mist, we've got um, Damasina Rose, we've got uh, Ylang Ylang and Jasmine Oil Perfumes and the nourishing vibrations of the myrtle, focus and determination given by the agave. Formentera Wheat is in there too and that's going to heal and nourish your inner child and boundaries. Now, all of those things, I think, are very, very important. Um, but I think the most exciting part of all of this, I was just reading exactly what goes into each and every single bottle of these Ibiza essences, is a little bit of Formentera seawater plus organic essential oils that are local uh, or as local as possible and from plants that are kind of grown and born and bred um, in and around the Balearics. And I think that's really important, particularly moving on from the conversation of our last guest, um, Gabriella. And I think, you know, it's a time when we need to be really appreciating and honoring our local environment and looking after, you know, Mother Earth and really appreciating her. And I know that, you know, this is just going to bring the person that receives this mist just that little bit of extra connection uh, maybe in a moment and a time when we really really need it most so if you would like a bottle of this beautiful mist Ibiza Essence uh, please please do drop me personally a line on just the good news please at gmail.com I'd love to hear from you um, just tell me one thing that you love about Ibiza um, and you will be put into the draw for that if you've just listened to the description I've um, just been reading out and you just think oh my god I want to buy some of those for Christmas um, for a loved one or a family member or a birthday or just to treat yourself um, we have got an exclusive um, discount code which is reset rebel 10 and the way to pop on and explore a little bit more about this beautiful Ibiza essences um, is literally ibithaessence.com so if you head on to there you can use the discount code you can read a little bit more um, about exactly how those wonderful um, mists are made and there's even a little meditation on there when you buy um, one of the bottles which I just think it's just such a gorgeous, gorgeous concept um, to, as I say, take a little piece of Ibiza away with you and remind you uh, and reset your head um, and just remind yourself of all the things you love 
um, about being here and how this island makes you feel, even if you can't get here right about now. Okay, that's enough talking to introduce today's show. I'm sending you all my love, um, wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing right now, and you know, whatever situation that you do find yourself in, even if you don't want one of these mists or, um, you know, you don't feel like you need one, then I think self-care, as I said, is just such an amazing way to get through this particular moment in time and having that little moment for yourself, even if that is just listening to a podcast like this one in the morning when you first wake up, so you've got you know, a voice in your ear, a friendly voice that you kind of connect to or you find gives you some sort of soothing sensation or, um, yeah, feeling that you can connect to. I mean, the radio for me was always like that when I was younger. Um, So I hope that somehow this provides um, a little bit of entertainment and distraction today with today's guest, who is a wonderful writer um, and biographer and historian and just all round good egg and fascinating man I uh, can't wait for you to meet him don't go away it's a rebel it's the reset rebel it's the reset rebel it's the reset rebel coming to you every day Welcome back to the Reset Rebel podcast with me, Joe Yule. And today we have a spectacular 180 vista um, over Ibiza town. We're up, very high up, um, at the tip of Dolt Villa, a world UNESCO heritage site. I'm very excited about chatting to today's guest and getting a little bit more under the skin of that exact title. What does that mean? Where did it come from? Uh, What are the kind of heritage sites that kind of are buried in Dalt Villa that really made it um, award-winning. I mean, it's pretty obvious to the naked eye if you stroll around here, as I have just been doing this morning, or kind of scurrying up the steps um, to meet today's guest. But it is a spectacular place. There is a really wonderful sense every time you come here that there's so much has happened. There's so much history, um, which I'm really excited again to find out so much more about with today's guest. Uh, But I think, you know, he's actually brought me to a place I've actually never been before. Now, he's going to laugh at me big time when I introduce him because he couldn't quite believe that I'd never been uh, to the place we are today. Martin Davies, welcome to today's show. Where are we? Um, Well, we're in the Cathedral Square of Ibiza Town, the old town. And it's a very special place. used to be a cemetery up until the 18th century, um, next to the cathedral, which was then just the main church of the island. And we're next to the law courts on one side, and we're looking towards what was called the Universitat, which was actually the sort of assembly uh, council hall. Not a university in any sense, uh, modern sense, but uh, where the whole um, island was represented by by the, the councillors, you might say. But um, then we thought that it would be quieter up here. And I think it is. It's sort of... You can hear a few boats and cranes, things, but it's still... Ooh, there's a cyclist. So... <laughs> anyway. Um, but it's a beautiful spot. It's certainly an inspiring spot. I think, you know, that's the funny part, isn't it, of trying to... Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> of trying to find a quiet place to record anything I'm finding um, in the last month or two has been tricky. I mean, traditionally at the end of the summer, that's the time when it cools down a bit. Obviously, Spanish workmen and builders and architects want to get into action. So I understand why it's particularly busy right now and particularly in the current times, um, why things might be even busier than usual because you never know what's around the corner. People want to get as much done as they can before uh, the potential landscape of our lives as we know them right now might might change for a while. Yes, I mean, it's been a very strange year, I must say, for everybody, uh, not just on Ibiza. Um, but I think we're lucky here as an island in a way not so urbanised as certain other parts of the world. Um, and I think a lot of people are almost fleeing the big centres to come here for a bit of uh, peace of mind, perhaps, and with the idea that Ibiza is always a special place in a crisis. I mean, it is a special place at the best of times, but I think it's, um, you know, I wasn't here for the last lockdown and I'm actually quite looking forward to it if, I, if it does happen again, to actually being here and kind of being on my home, my home turf. I mean, how, how was that particular experience for you as a, as a Dalt Villa resident? Oh, I'm not a Dalt Villa. I live in, in the, in the um, town, the main town, the capital, but not in the old town where we are now. As a villero, as they call the, the local people who live in, in Ibiza town, um, it was actually um, fine. Uh, I didn't have too many problems with regard to mobility. There was, I think, uh, a one, one week or 10 days when we were confined indoors. But otherwise, I was able to go to my office every day. I had a, I'd written myself a special bit of uh, permission as a self-employed person, so that wasn't a problem. I was stopped by the police once, and because I'd written my permission in a very nice calligraphic way, they were... They they were they liked it very much and didn't find me. So, did they give it back to you? Yes, yes. They told, they said they could see I was a publisher because of the way I wrote or something funny. It was very very nice of them. Yeah. I said just it's worth putting a little bit more effort into your uh, your kind of excuse note. Well, it's my philosophy. Really, beauty is is beauty is everything. If you make put that little bit of effort into a letter, into an email, into a piece of paper, you might show the Guadalajara. It might change your, it might make things easier. Yes, yeah, so bring back beauty, definitely. Whether COVID's on or, or at any point in life, beauty is certainly uh, very important. Yeah, as we can see, just, just sitting here, looking at this beautiful panorama around us. The island of picturesquely undulating hills, as one guide put it. <laughs> was, that, was that one of yours? No, this was a, a guidebook from the 1930s, uh, which a Croatian, I believe, wrote. Yeah, <laughs> Ibiza's full of surprises, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, Martin, you have published quite a few, quite a few books in your time. I mean, what what was it? Let's go back to the beginning. Like, what was it that kind of brought you here originally, and when was that? Well, uh, Ibiza, to be quite frank, was not the sort of place I'd have come because I'm a quiet bod. You know, I'm not a party animal at all, and uh, it was only because I met an Ibithenko in London. And we, we formed a close friendship, and now we've been married for, well, nearly 30 years. Um, he, it was he who brought me here. He's from uh, the village of San Rafael, and completely Ibithenko. And, and when was that? How long ago did you follow him back here? That was 90, well, 91 we met. I came here in 92 for um, two holidays, and uh, then the, in 93 I came to live, February 93, on my 30th birthday. Very, uh, sorry, 32nd birthday very um very sort of uh poetic seeming yeah so was it the beauty of the island that that sort of captured your heart just as much as your your wonderful husband definitely definitely i think uh ibiza's beauty i was saying this uh, to another um 
team doing it, some recording here, that is definitely the, it, it just gets under your skin straight away, okay, as soon as you see this, this beautiful landscape, this beautiful capital city. And then the people, of course, you discover as well, they're just as wonderful. Um, and then I think finally, you discover the culture, and the culture is pretty amazing. The island's culture, it's sort of hidden in plain sight, you might say. It's there, like the cathedral, right under your nose. And if you do a little bit of digging and exploring, uh, you'll find all over the island wonderful things. I mean, as a, as a British man, I mean, I think, you know, ultimately, there's not a lot, a lot of British men that come to live here that actually really get under the skin of Ebithenko life, which is something that you have had the joy of because you are together with an Ebithenko. So your life here has been very different, I think, to a lot of people that come here from overseas because a lot of people never get to taste that. They never get to see it fully because they don't learn to speak either good enough Spanish or they just don't meet enough people that are intrinsically kind of linked to the environment and the culture in the way that I guess that you, you have been since the moment you got here? Well, that's very interesting uh, because in the 60s and 70s, um, hundreds, if not thousands, of British women married Ibithenko men. And um, so there are a lot of British women here, an awful lot, and they put down roots. I'm, I'm friendly with many of them, and they, they you know, had, had families. So, but on the other hand, not so many British men married Ibithenko women. It didn't work the other way. So you're absolutely right there. Um, perhaps being gay, um, I was able to marry an English man. That's why an Ibithenko man, that, that sort of probably helped um, in that sense. But... Um, uh, I think having access to an Ibithenko family, whether as friends or if you're married into them, as it were, uh, does help an awful lot because it takes you right straight away into into the sort of um, into the soul of the island. You no, know, you 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 get to know the people, their customs, and stuff like that. And some people, I'm not among them, get to speak Catalan Ibithenko very well. Um, I'm ashamed to say I've never made that oops um, effort, but uh, I I do understand it. Yeah. <laughs> Slight interlude here. It's a beautiful, beautiful tune. Martin's phone. <laughs> and, you know, you say that you've had the privilege of kind of experiencing some of those Ebithenko kind of customs. What, what would you say your favourite one is? What's the one thing that really makes you feel like home when you kind of feel it or see it or experience it? Well, the first time I saw Ebithenko dancing was at a wedding. Um, a couple of years after I'd been here, a year or so. I'd, ne- I'd never seen it before, and it just struck me um, like a thunderbolt because it's so unlike any other um, dance that's uh, in Europe or anywhere else for that matter. There are, there are parallels, sort of vague similarities to other dances in places like the Caucasus. Um, recently, a very clever um, local investigator has discovered links with dances in the Pyrenees, which died out about 100 years ago. So... Um, uh, the dance itself is is uh, very memorable, and you can see it if you if you're a tourist or a visitor going up to San Miguel. Uh, I think once or twice every, uh, in the week during the summer. That's one special custom. Um, another one, which I never have seen myself, but I've read about a lot, is um, the festej, which means the courtship. Now, this basically involved when a, a girl came of age she it would become known in the village and suitors would come and visit her um, I think twice a week and they would each have a certain amount of time it would be shared evenly between the suitors so if, if there was a couple of hours and there were I don't know eight suitors they'd each have 15 minutes and the idea was that they would just talk to her they weren't allowed to have any physical contact 
And so uh, the be beauty of this arrangement was that you would choose your future partner on the basis of their mind as well as their body, <laughs> which isn't a bad idea, is it? So, <laughs> so by the time you got married, you knew a little bit about... Uh, you know what they were like you'd seen the competition too which helps kind of were in a position to make a fairly good assessment of someone's character perhaps. sounds a bit like sort of speed dating except you had a, a couple of weeks or whatever months i'm not sure it depended how long it went on for um to make your to make your you didn't actually i think in speed dating you have 15 minutes <laughs> something uh, but it was you know speed dating over several months I, I'd never thought of that parallel but that's a nice idea perhaps they should bring back the fist edge to London <laughs> you know but of course it's different in a village um, environment where everyone knows everyone else and so you're kind of um, you're pitching your 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 kind of ideas or your who you are in a, a sort of controlled way yeah it's a little bit like probably Dalt Villa is for, for the gay scene, I guess, in the, in the middle of Hive and Thrive of, of midsummer, normally, when it's like the town and the streets are throbbing with hot bodies and there's a lot of action going on in these, in these streets in sort of July, August time normally, which you didn't have this summer. And how was that? What was the kind of contrast? Well, well I'm the last person to act. I'm a happily married man. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you'd no, but just the general <laughs> feeling of the, the, the difference. I mean, it must have felt very, very different this year. Yeah, but also I'm, I, I don't go out very much anyway. If friends come over to the island, they drag me off to Cali de la Virgen. And so that's my little outing. But um, What's that? that? That's where the gays have their bars and we have a drink or two. But um, yes, the, the disco scene, uh, the clubbing scene, sorry, that wasn't, didn't take place, of course. So what happened instead, in a way, was that the, the Paseo Maritimo, the, the um, promenade along the, the, the waterfront, was um, the new focus for nightlife, you might say. And I think the bars there did a, a good trade, whereas, you know, in previous years they've been quietly um, battling against the places like San Antonio and Vallembosa, which have come up very much. So it was, in a way, uh, an injection of kind of um, activity for Ibiza town, for the waterfront area. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this wonderful, chiming cathedral we have in the background. I mean, you have so much kind of uh, historical knowledge of Delt Villa. This is obviously one of your favourite spots. Well, the person to ask who is... Uh, the person to ask is um, the canon uh, Francisco Peters, uh, Torres Peters, his mother's English, and he actually had the bells restored I believe about five or six years ago so that's why they sound so splendid and he he also organized the museum in the cathedral which is a wonderful little museum um, he's, a, he's a great historian published lots of books about medieval history especially and the church um, so I can't tell you a lot um, except to say that the spire we're looking at was originally planned to be a proper spire but um, it was um, never completed I think that's what it is or was it possibly destroyed in a thunderstorm? I can't remember. I should know, but <laughs> I've forgotten. Anyway, it was planned to be a proper spire, a little spire, yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting to, to note, as, as we did at the beginning of the podcast, that this is obviously a world UNESCO heritage site. And all I know is that that happened, or they got their crown in 1999, um, which seems like a very poignant moment, I suppose, before the turn of the millennium to have uh, kind of, you know, achieved that title. But, you know, for, I think a lot of people just don't really know what that actually means or how they got that particular award. Well, for any Spanish town, it's the cherry on the cake or city because that means you 
belong to the select group of whatever it is, 20 something cities which have this accolade. Um, so of course the local tourist board were very determined to, to join the club. It's, um, it means you have this sort of extra, you know, wreath. Um, in some ways it wasn't actually so great because they decided to repave um, Ibiza town to make it all nice and nice and sort of uh, visitor friendly but in a way they destroyed a lot of the charm by ripping up the cobblestones I think some other lucky town probably on the mainland got them I have no idea where they went to but uh, knowing Spain there was some good business involved and uh, <laughs> instead we got these industrialized um, factory made blocks for, for certain parts of town I mean, I, I say that, I don't want to be disloyal, but it's a fact, you know, they should have been more sensitive when they were doing that. And not just thinking about prams, but about the actual, you know, the, the ambience of the, the, the whole city. I think it's always, a, I don't know if these ones have been replaced, but the ones going up the ramp, you know, towards the kind of big sort of fortress doors. And it always makes me laugh when you kind of sit in that little tapas bar and watch the world go by and people kind of sliding down these big stones in their flip-flops. They're quite slippery, those big stones, just inside the doors yeah. as well. Yeah. And I don't think those ones have been replaced because they look very authentic and very large and very rugged. Thank goodness. Danger and delight. It's my, my, my credo grow on the same stalk you know let's bring it back back a bit of um, risk-taking um, provided people are sensible I mean you don't need to slip on your I've never seen anyone slip down them um, <laughs> they I were, think yeah. I think let's go back there before we talk more about the cobblestones like yeah. danger and delight Martin what danger Ibiza's seen a lot of danger and uh, yeah. clearly a lot of delight it's, it's a place of extreme indulgence in lots of different departments but I think you know the danger factor this this particular area of, of town is obviously surrounded by pirate towers by turrets where people are obviously keeping watch uh, to make sure that this p- part of town didn't come under attack yeah we don't have any pirate towers as such I mean Ibiza doesn't have pirate towers the towers were built by the state to um, keep the corsairs at bay so they were they, they were inhabited by or they were they had guards in them who weren't pirates but it's a lovely uh, people use the, the expression a lot especially the one by Svedra because pirates are sort of sexy and saleable so <laughs> Corsairs is technically speaking the correct term because they had letters of mark, which basically means a, a certificate from the state allowing them to plunder ships which belong to the enemy. Okay, so Ibiza had its not its pirates but its Corsairs, who were had their you know proper certificates. The most famous Antonio Riquet. There's a there's a statue to a famous battle he had with uh, an Italian English um, Corsair. Um, called El, El Papa, the Pope, just outside the the, um, the harbour of Ibiza, I think in 1808, something like that. And um, so that is, and the statue says, from Ibiza to its corsairs. So they were the ones who kept the, the uh, Barbary pirates, or corsairs, at bay. So they are the local heroes. Um, and yes, it was a dangerous island uh, for much of its history, especially you'd say from the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries until the Ibithenko Corsairs went on the offensive. And they were, you might say, the, um, what's the famous expression? Uh, a sort of a palisade of, of, of oak. They were our, although not oak in this case, of pine. The, the boats themselves were our first out of defence. They carried the, the battle to the shores of uh, North Africa and made them quake in their whatever sandals <laughs> flip-flops 
yeah, they're alpargata sandals, yeah, <laughs> whatever they wore. <laughs> so um, uh, in the 18th century, Ibiza enjoyed a certain sense of revindication of, of pride in itself. That's when the churches were built, nearly all of them were built between 17, something, 1730 and 1790. And um, a lot of the uh, houses too, the, the older peasant houses were built in that period as well. And also towards the end of the century, there was an extraordinary period, like the Enlightenment principles arrived in Ibiza, a lot of trees and vines were planted, and that's when the kind of, um, you might say, the present idea of Ibiza began to take shape with these lovely terraces and fields. Um, uh, yeah. So it's kind of reinvented itself many, many times. It's almost like a chameleon of an island. It's kind of like gone through lots of different you know, facades and stages and, you know, it's, it's evolved heavily like over the last sort of 500 years it's, it's changed dramatically to what we know it to be now, the white island um, full of kind of, you know the fanciful, fruitful um, traffic and footfall that we have here of, of people that come here, you know, predominantly to sail around in their fancy yachts and eat in lovely restaurants and be seen. Yes, I mean we've had about 90 years of tourism now and, uh it's pretty intensive uh, at the moment, you know, a lot of people wonder if it's too much, whether it's sort of eroded the island's essence, you know, uh, when we started building these big highways in the 90s, um, a lot of people, local people were very against the big San Antonio Ibiza road and still very kind of deep feeling about that. Now they've just built, um, uh, they've expanded the, they've enlarged the road to Santolalia, uh, it's taken about two years. And it'll make certain, certainly make getting around a lot easier because that's getting around by car is difficult um, in the summer and even in the winter. So it's a difficult um, uh, thing to, to manage that balance between uh, progress and uh, mod cons and keeping the essence of a place. I think Ibiza's done fairly well. We, I mean, we do try and keep. The culture is kept alive in, in all sorts of ways, the language, um, the monuments are beautifully looked after on the whole. My one gripe, if I was to make a gripe, was that there hasn't been proper protection, I think, of the Casas Payeses, or it's come too late. And so a lot of the buildings I saw back in the 90s, the early 90s, they've all gone, really, and they haven't been protected as they would have been um, perhaps in Britain because the protection of, of the, these beautiful old houses was sort of not in place. So that's one thing I miss, the, those lovely houses, whitewashed. Of course, they, they represent a different way of life, so it's difficult to keep them going as little museums when people want to live in them. something we are personally very excited about here on the Reset Rebel aside from this amazing interview is our new Patreon account. Um, After making this show for 80 episodes over two years, we kind of really feel that we want to expand the work that we do to give back to those suffering from anxiety and depression on this podcast. And we can only do it with your help and the work we are doing, giving back free retreat spaces on the island and offering treatment to people who really need it but maybe can't afford it, brings us so much joy. And it really needs you to get on board and help us through this membership program. 
To join and contribute, there are three tiers with lots of extra exclusive Ibiza content that you can enjoy depending on the tier that you choose. But at the very least, for as little as five euros a month, you can help us just keep making this show and we would be so very, very grateful. To sign up, pop over to patreon.com slash Ibiza, the Reset Rebel. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ibiza, the Reset Rebel. Now, on with the show. Thank you so much for listening. You have got quite a nice selection of museums in Ibiza town. I mean, there's quite, you know, you've got this one here, as you were just describing when I arrived, is actually closed? Yes, it's been closed now for about 20 years. (laughs) Typical. (laughs) I'm not quite sure why that one's been closed so long, because the building itself is fine. Um, The main, it was the archaeological museum um, when I first arrived, and along with the other main archaeological museum, which is in the necropolis, um, the, the Carthaginian necropolis. Now, um, next door, but don't worry, there's a very, very good Islamic museum almost next door, just down from the cathedral. And that's in, um, that's, um, when I say Islamic museum, it's um, a museum celebrating Ibiza under Muslim rule, which was from about the mid-10th century to 1235. So they have recreated... Um, how this particular house was and with panels and lots of information it's quite nicely done a bit further down we've got another beautiful museum of a painter called Narcisse Pouget um, lovely old palazzo um, full of his paintings uh, then further down we've got the Museum of Contemporary Art which was recently refurbished very beautifully done and so these are the buildings the museums oh and missed out the Columbus Museum as you're waking, making your way down the hill from the cathedral on the left there's a lovely little museum called the Columbus Museum because um, a friend of mine, Anita Verdera, um, believes that uh, Christopher Columbus was born on Ibiza and um, so he's, his life was work really is to bring this, his theories to the attention of the world and he's done quite a good job and, and the museum is a lovely little gem I think well, it'll be opened again as soon as this crisis is over. What leads us to believe that Christopher Columbus was born in Ibiza? Please tell me very good question mainly the language um uh when when columbus um was uh making his discoveries he left uh documents and um the the catalan in 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 one of them is punctuated in a way which suggests the balearic islands okay there's a certain back in the old days things like full stops and commas didn't really exist as we know them so punctuation was evolving in different parts of Europe and the way he punctuates his letters points very strongly to the Balearic Islands. It's, you might say, uh, a little detail which is very significant. Um, There are several books about this subject um, in Spanish and I think in English. I'm not quite sure if there's one in... There is one by someone called Bonin, Professor Bonin. He's he's done some work too. Um, Oh no, there's there's a a professor in America who's who's, who's talked about this. He was almost certainly from the Catalan-speaking areas. Whether it was Ibiza or Mallorca or perhaps both of them is still open to debate or perhaps somewhere on the Catalan mainland. Um, It's a very thorny issue. Each person says they've got the whole truth. Myself, do you want to hear my opinion? Martin, that's what I'm here for. (laughs) Well, I think he was Jewish as well, you see. So um, the Jews in the 15th century basically were moving around a lot 
and um, they certainly weren't going to reveal their Jewishness because that could, you know, be be very very complicated. It could it was dangerous. So he hid his his family identity, and um, his family, I think, were probably Mallorcan Jews because that has a much larger. Um, Jewish community with strong links to Ibiza and perhaps members of the family you know had done business here or were doing business here in the 14th century and they had um, converted to Christianity as most Jews did then um, in, in, in the Balearics. Why did they why did they convert? Uh, there was there was a terrible outbreak of pogroms in the late 14th century and so it was what's known as forced conversion in a way because the Alternatives, you might get beaten to death by the by the mob, and there was actually some some violence here in Ibiza, which shows that the myth of island tolerance isn't always true. You know, well, I like yeah, I like some of this coming out because you know sometimes you just think this is the, this white island that everyone's like whitewashed the walls and covered up all of the history, and that's, this is interesting. Who's a, what's a pogrom? Well, a pogrom is when the um, the Jews are attacked by the people who in whose you know in whose midst they live. So in the Middle Ages, there were pogroms, and also in 19th century Russia, it's famous for its pogroms, um, and sort of lynched, basically, and they flee for their lives. So there was a big outbreak of this in 1382, I think it was, or three, I can't remember now. Anyway, and it happened all over Spain. It started in one city and, and spread like wildfire to the others. There was a big one, big outbreak in Palma. People thought Ibiza was... was um, escaped this but a recent um, historian has uncovered that no it happened here too yeah so we're no different if you think just like humans everywhere else they they have their good days and bad days then and they're susceptible to the you know the foibles of, of humanity as anyone else but you think christopher columbus was a converted jew to christianity and was here around about the end of the 14th century no not personally probably his family converted what happened you see when this outbreak happened was that many Jews converted, you know, perhaps outwardly, but they retained a certain amount of their faith. You don't just lose your faith overnight, do you? So um, perhaps the second or third generation further down than the line, you're becoming more Christianized. But you still have elements of both in, in your makeup, in your, in your uh, religious makeup, I think. Uh, there's a lot of little things in, in his life which point to a possible Jewish connection, and his name too, yeah which is uh, Columbus, that's a Jewish, that's known amongst Jews as well. Mm. What, what other famous residents can you recall from your 30, you know, almost 30 years in this beautiful town? There must be some other kind of people that have kind of, you know, really stuck in your mind uh, as Dalt Villa residents that maybe are no longer with us, perhaps? Well, Dalt Villa residents, I, the, I think most people left Dalt Villa um, when um, when you know plumbing and things uh, was arrived in the 50s and 60s in Ibiza town, so they went down to live in in Via Punica and that area near the near the museum. Um, but there was a f- there was a wonderful man, uh, Luis Llobet, who belonged to uh, an old Dalvila family. He had a big palazzo um, just down the road from the cathedral. Um, he was, you know, a confirmed bachelor, as they used to say. <laughs> and his uncle was a, quite a gifted and well-known painter here, um, Mariano Jobet, uh, who did lovely um, paintings of flowers and things. Very extravagant, uh, colourful figure, uh, kind of Oscar Wilde-ish in ways. I've come across very funny descriptions of him in the 30s being outrageous. Um, 
So Luis had this wonderful palazzo. He was a writer himself and a custodian, you might say, of the family treasures, had some beautiful paintings by Catalan and, and local painters, wonderful photographs and a lovely library. He, he passed away, I think, uh, two years ago. So we, that was a great loss. He was really the guardian of Dalt Villa. He, he did so much to, to keep the, um, the fabric of the, of the old town, the upper town is, is, is what it means, um, in good nick. And um, let's hope uh, someone will fill his big shoes uh, because it, you need... I mean, it's all very well for the government to, you know, say it's going to look after the heritage. But you, sometimes you need private individuals as well perhaps with a bit of money in their pocket to, to help things along. He, he devoted a lot of his personal wealth to keeping um, Ibiza's, uh, you know, uh, fabric, as I say, in good shape. Well, what is it about Dolt Villa? I mean, you know, traditionally we, we know that it has a beautifully large gay community. We know that it has a lot of history. We know that it has some uh, amazing spectacles to come and kind of, you know, immerse in. I think when you're feeling a little bit lost on the island, it's a good place to come and set foot in and kind of, you know, get a little taste of some culture and history again. Because I think sometimes you can waft around the beauty of the landscapes and feel like you just need something old, like a good old wall or a nice cobblestone to put your feet on to feel a bit more connected. I feel like that anyway. I don't know if other people do, but I'm interested. Why do you think there's like such a plethora of uh, writers like yourself, you know, uh, artists, and why does it draw that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of footfall to its landscape? Well, well none of us live in Dalvila. I mean, it's basically a ghost town in winter. Um, people come here in the summer and uh, help help you know hotels and bars etc. to 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 get by. But um, and there's no gay community gay community here as far as I know there was a bit of uh, when I first arrived there was a bar La Moralia which run by uh, an interesting French guy who'd lived in London Daniel and uh, that was you know a centre of um, of uh, gay life but um, um, why Dalt Vila well as I said earlier it's such a beautiful beautiful um, acropolis you know it's a wonderful um, it's built on a rock uh, so when you arrived by boat in the old days in the 50s or 30s you would come around the headland you know which is quite barren it's just sort of rocks and scrub and suddenly you would see the you'd see you'd see the tower of the cathedral from from the headland but you come around and suddenly you'd see all these wonderful tiers of houses with this huge you know tawny uh renaissance walls kind of enclosing them and then the fishing quarter below those and the little bay and the bars and the shops it was just a vision of paradise. Um, people, I've read, I don't know, perhaps a hundred different descriptions of this, and it just took their breath away, you know. There was a wonderful um, line which I actually put at the beginning of one of my photo albums I edited by an Irish writer, and she describes this vision and, and says, why do people love Ibiza? How can you explain love? But I think that first vision... Was with, with love at first sight, you know, you would come round, you just fell in love with Ibiza, <laughs> no question. When you come from the airport, <laughs> you see a lot of billboards, uh, highways. It's not quite the same. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I've so, read, I've read Rolf Blackstad's new book, which has just come out in English, and I know that it was in Catalan for for many, many years. But now it's in English, and I remember when I was 
very kindly gifted a copy before it was published in English to read and, and kind of, you know, that very first chapter about, you know, when his father did exactly what you said. He'd come from Canada and he came over here looking for somewhere to live potentially or just travels to kind of explore and experience life from a different perspective. And exactly what you just described, that paragraph really captured by imagination of when he first sailed into Ibiza town and the way he described the environment and the people that greeted that boat that were on the ground just seemed so also joyful to have people coming back and those people their faces and that you know that vision I think just you know really made him understand that this is a place that you could call home. Yeah and Rolf actually it's interesting you should mention him he was living practically opposite the colourful painter Mariano Llobet I described and knew him and had some funny stories as well because Rolf was a painter. He had trained as a painter, so he appreciated these, um, these uh, bohemians these, uh, and aristocratic bohemians as well in this case. Uh, Rolf lived here, f- I'm not quite sure for how long, but then he went out to, I think, first Santulalia and then San Carlos. They found this lovely farmhouse, which he did up, and so he became very much a person of, the, of that part of the island. Um, but, yeah, he, his descriptions of, of that... That villa. Then there are a few famous names um, from from both his period and earlier. Um, Owen Bronner, a German architect and painter, is another one um, who who lived in that villa for a bit. And uh, I don't think Elmir de Ori, the painter, I don't, I don't think he ever lived in that villa. He was always on the hill of the windmills, Puchters Molines, um, and he had a a Bronner villa there later on. So. Um, I'm just trying to think what other famous... What is it? Puig. What, you know, we've got Puig den Vals. What, what does it mean? Hill. Puig. P-U-I-G. Puig is how you pronounce it. Yeah. So what, what does Puig den Vals mean? Um, the Puig of Vi- someone called Vais, I guess. So who, uh, whoever he was, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, somewhere, he probably had a farm nearby. So um, the biggest farmer in the area gave his name to the hill. And there was a windmill on there as well. Yeah, lots of windmills in Ibiza in the old days. It was uh, uh, a sign of, you know, a, a, a prosperous community. Um, there was a whole load behind the cathedral on the headland. There just um, no remains of them now. Think about old old drawings show there were four or five. And then on the, the hill of the windmills, which in Smolins, there were, I think, eight or nine. Yeah, something like that. So lots of, lots of activity there. Um, and a few more dotted around the island. There's one in San Rafael, a couple more on the way to San Rafael, etc. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, we can probably maybe get a whiff of it if we if we peer over the wall here. But there is obviously a little ghetto uh, element to Ibiza. Of course, Rolf talked about that as well when he first arrived. And then he was just standing there right, you know, just above where the fishing, uh, the little fishing harbour was. And I think, you know, just to the left of that, when I was reading that in my mind's eye, that chapter, it was a bit like, you know, Sepena was just off to the left. And you kind of think... When did that evolve, that little area of town? When did the Romany gypsies come? Do you know anything about that? Well, they were brought over by a Franciscan um, um, in, I think it was the 70s. It's a good question, I should know. But um, they, I think they came from Granada, near Granada, and he had converted them, as it were, to Christianity or to lead a more Christian life. And... Sadly, that didn't last for very long because uh, many of them 
um, later turned to, to illicit methods of, of earning a living, amongst which is selling drugs. So um, the thing was that the Bithenkos had moved out of that area of town as there was no running water, etc. So they moved to the new, what they call the Ensanche, the, the um, extension, the new town, just west of, east of, east, west of Vara de Rey. And so there was nice cheap rents there for the for the gypsies to to uh, take over. Um, recently, I understand that the the ayuntamiento has the town hall has tried to has uh, evicted a lot of them, and uh, the area is undergoing a certain amount of gentrification. But I I think it's been very problematic from the start. You know, the rights of the gypsies have had to be also brought to the table. So. Um, and a lot of them have been rehoused in in uh, sort of on the outskirts of Ibiza town, but um, I think it's still work in progress there. Uh, it's a very picturesque part of town, very close to the the sea and everything. Um, at the very far end, there was the, the the brothel in the old days, in the 40s and 50s, and it was located there precisely to to keep the um, the um, prostitutes at away from the good bourgeois citizens of Ibiza. They basically weren't allowed to come into town. Yeah. Do you think that scene still exists on the island? Oh yes, Ibiza is a huge brothel. I mean, <laughs> in summer, it's just one gigantic brothel. No, I mean the clubbing. I mean, I won't name the places, but uh, it's a well-known fact that uh, sex is a very big industry in Ibiza, especially amongst for the very rich and people. Yeah. What, what do you mean that Ibiza's <laughs> a big brothel? Elaborate for us. Come on, Martin. Well, I don't want to shock your listeners. But, I mean, um, uh, if you go to certain nightclubs, um, which are very expensive, then a lot of the girls you might see standing around are there to earn their living. Do I make myself clear? (laughs) Capiche, yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so, you know, is that just... You know, this is just an interesting point, though, because in my mind, you said this before, you don't think there's much of a gay community here in Delt Villa. I mean, I can't imagine... But but why do you say that? Because in my head, that's not how it is. Well, I think that when I, when let's get some facts clear. Daltvila is the area surrounded by the wall, okay? Mm-hmm. Which not many people live in anyway. For Ibicencos, Daltvila, Sapena, La Marina, and the Ensanche are very distinguished, very clearly demarcated parts of Ibiza town. It's like saying Hampstead is the same as Piccadilly. It's not. It's a completely different kettle of fish for a Londoner. So, speaking as a Vilero, someone who lives in Ibiza town, Daltvila for us is where is the area surrounded by the walls it means literally Dalt is upper the upper town so if you speak Catalan it's straight away you can't be talking about Sapenia you're talking about the upper town where up above the walls is Dalt Vila totally fair enough I just like it's an interesting thing because I think you know if you talk to anybody that visits here they would say there's a real gay scene here in Ibiza town which is kind of in my mind I live here too I'm you know I don't uh, fraternize in that community but I would love to know it's just interesting for me and I I think you know you should everybody should have their own community of of places they can dip in and out of that you know are more kind of on par with you know where they're at in their lives so I think it's it's good to have different communities where people you know feel supported and they have uh, you know people that make them feel at home their tribe yeah no I mean I'm all for that um, I guess I'm a bit of a, uh, a kind of a Steppenwolf, a lone, a lone wolf, you know. Um, I've never really been one for the tribe, so I'm very happy that the tribe goes hunting or whatever together. But <laughs> I just kind of come in and out, and it's not my, my thing. 
I'm more interested in. I mean, I have my friends uh, that are gay, straight, both, whatever. So it doesn't really. Um, uh, I, I don't kind of feel. I don't identify, I guess, as strongly with that. One thing that does piss me off, though, <laughs> and now we're on the subject, <laughs> is the when they have the gay pride. It's so loud and horror. I think it's. I mean, uh, when it's kind of not my scene at all. It makes me feel gay shame. You know, I should be ashamed to make to be creating this loud, raucous um, thing which disturbs all the neighbourhood. And I know a lot of my friends who live in that area find it a little bit too loud. So I, I like the silence. You know, I'm not. Um, I'm not going to. Def- I'm not going to be a spokesperson for them. Sorry. <laughs> if, it's, if it's too loud, you're too old, Martin. That's my. That's my phrase. Um, but I think you know it's too wise. Co- <laughs> well, absolutely. And I was very, very, very privileged that you yeah. invited me literally the first time yeah. I ever spoke to you to to pop over for lunch and and then uh, you know we went back later on that afternoon. We had tea in your wonderful library, or separated from your yeah. actual home. And you know that's clearly your happy place. That's the place I, I imagine you whiling away your you know more of your time researching and and you know doing your writing and kind of creating i mean this is oh here we we got a bit of noise here (laughs) this is something i feel passionately about because ibiza people and on the one hand they say oh yes ibiza is a cultural island it's for creative people blah blah you can't be creative if if someone's you know having a party below you uh 24 7 as as i actually have experienced in in rocalisa so this Italian DJ who lived above me. So I know, uh, and or when the when the uh, town hall in its wisdom puts an ice skating rink outside my window, with blasting with with heavy music when I'm trying to edit a book. So uh, uh, this is one. I will get on my soapbox now and say I love I love the idea of partying and and music, but it, we have to also have boundaries. Otherwise, it degenerates into a free for all. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> Well, so, actually, our, our beautiful mutual friend, Joe Ruby, I know mm. is probably going to be listening to this. Mm. You know, she has said that exact same thing. When Leo is on, her windows are closed, her curtains are pulled, and it still infiltrates, you know, her sleep. You're under a state of siege. And so one man's freedom is another man's, you know, prison cell. Um, it's not fun. So uh, it's lovely that Ibiza is a party island, but um, the the party has to kind of, I don't know mature a little bit be more responsible similar thing with the party boats um i don't know if you've ever been on a party boat joe but i've never been on a party boat martin actually i'm gonna be honest there i might sound like a right boring old fart but i haven't no 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 i'm i'm very glad you said that because uh, you know now they've they brought the noise to the island they brought the noise to the sea it's not right, really. It's just too much for some of us old farts. <laughs> well, I actually did live in Playa del Bossa just for one summer, only for two or three months. I was staying with a friend, and it was just the most full-on thing. When the boats parked up in that particular area, all I could do was hear this throbbing wave like towards my window, and it was intense. It was too much. I, I felt absolutely assaulted so I, I totally hear what you're saying <laughs> Martin let's talk about your writing let's talk about the thing that you love in this world and your library and your work that you do do here I mean you've been here for almost 30 years um, how many books have you actually have published not just the ones you've edited but the ones you've really I know that you have paid a big writing part in some of those books that you've edited as well but what's you know what's your kind of pride and joy well it's very difficult to say because all the books you say that I've edited I've also partly written in one way or another, um, translated or 
or redone the text sometimes. So there's, only, there's a lot of me in the text. So um, uh, my own books have, you might say, suffered because I've been busy getting others into shape, knocking others into shape. Um, I don't know. I, it's difficult to put a figure. It's 10. I've, done, I've been working on very deeply on 10 books. I've, I've written another 10 myself, which uh, sadly are on the back burner still. <laughs> one on the architecture, one on the Jews of Ibiza, one on the Tanit cult. Uh, I've written books about other parts of the world, such as Maramures in Romania and the Bernese Oberland. I've written a book on northern Morocco. I've written um, what else? Were major projects. I've been. I'm working on a project about um, Hausmann and uh, and other figures at the moment. So uh, it's all grist to the mill, you might say. And sometimes when I'm working on one project, it, although a book doesn't come out, it feeds into another one. Mm-hmm. So my current um, main priority is a travel book about Ibiza in the 1930s, which I discovered by an Irishman. And um, working on that, the footnotes and, and uh, etc., has taken me into all sorts of areas which I wouldn't have explored, especially the sea. I did, I'm not very much of a sailor, but thanks to this book, I've learnt a lot about life on the sea because he was a very good sailor. Yeah. So each book is a way, a journey, taking me to places I, I wasn't expecting. I mean, we've had some interesting conversations in the past about Tanit and some uh, interesting artefacts that have been discovered on this island, uh, one particular painting. But what, you know, you said you've written a book on, or you've edited a book, or you've helped with a book about the cult of Tanit. Well, this grew out of the Ibiza Quills talks, which myself, Joanna, Ben Dunwell, another very talented writer, and um, uh, um, Sophia, um, the... um, owner of Libra Thule and Emily Kaufman I must mention Emily she's a wonderful writer um, we two years ago we we gave three talks or yeah about Tanit basically they're called Tipples with Tanit so um, they were I think they were supposed to be broadcast as podcasts but it never happened so I thought oh, I better put down what what I said and what I've discovered before it's lost so this is what that's about yeah Tell us, tell us something that we that we haven't heard yet. Well, I'll tell you two things, okay, if I may. Firstly, <laughs> I mean, some of your listeners will know this, but the image of Tanit with the wavy hair probably isn't Tanit. It's Demeter. It's a Greek uh, sculpture, probably made in Sicily, where, where parts of Sicily where Tanit wasn't worshipped. So that's why it's probably Tanit. And secondly, she's not even called Tanit. <laughs> She's called Tinit, <laughs> probably, according to uh, the, the, the scant epigraphic um, uh, remains of, of her cult. So, because the, the Carthaginians didn't actually use vowels, so we don't know how they said T and T. But it seems to have been Tinit, T-I-N or double N-I-T. So those two little, with those two little uh, things I will... That's enough for now because, of course, it's. Uh, I don't want to spoil the book. <laughs> of course not. But why do you think that she inspired people to actually create a cult around her? What was so culty about Tanit? Well, the statue, for a start, it's a very beautiful statue, which isn't of her. So that's that's how things get get going. You know, you, you discover an iconic statue, people put it on their whatever. It crops up all over the place, doesn't it? It's a symbol of the island on books. It's on the front of a new history book of Ibiza. <laughs> uh, countless guidebooks, etc. So uh, a picture can launch a thousand myths. I don't know. <laughs> what? Um, when is your book coming out, the one about Tanit? 
oh, people stop pestering me with their books so I can get on with mine. <laughs> Probably when I die. Sorry. <laughs> Martin, you love writing all these other people's books with them. It's your life's, yes. you know, it's your work. It's what makes you happy. And I don't believe for a minute that you don't enjoy doing it because you just continue to do it and you are like a machine. No, it's a privilege because I, if I do take on a book, it's because the person who wrote it or, or illustrated it is a very special soul has got a lot to say and so um, it, it is fun and they take me I mean it's like with Joanna Joanna approached me um, when we were giving a, a talk about Tanit and she said oh could you um, help me with a podcast I'm doing on the wells so I said you know I know nothing about Tanit in the wells so in a way that was thanks to Joanna's um, you know, uh, approaching me on that, and we did. We did actually. Thanks, thank you, Joanna. You, your podcast is the only one which, of all the ones, which did actually get on the air. But it was thanks partly to Joanna's prodding that got me investigating the, the true story about whether Tenet was in the well or not. And I'm not going to say more at this stage. <laughs> well, we're going to big up Joe's podcast now because, um, yeah, it was. It's called the Wells of Tenet, and it's a wonderful show, yeah. um, which has a theme every month of water or. Um, sun or Tanit or yeah many other things besides that are kind of Ibiza inspired and she's just the most amazing narrator we absolutely love Joanna Ruby um, so yes she's, that's kind of the reason we met actually she did give me your telephone number as well as Rolf Blackstad when I was doing that research project and a very gifted artist too I mean we're, Ibiza does attract these people and uh, she's been doing amazing work uh, as many of you know with her puppets I went to a lovely puppet show of the giant of, of Esvedran, a little kind of cave-like space in the country not not long ago. Um, and uh, she's recently done a lovely puppet show for the museum, the Ethnographic Museum in Santolalia. So she's one of these people like Rolf who've really, you know, got a lot to give the island and they, and luckily they have the artistic training and background to, 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 um, to achieve it because... It's one thing to say you're going to do something, but you have to have some solid craftsmanship. My other favourite word, to be a crafts or craftswomanship. I've never heard that before. <laughs> to be a crafts person. A bit crafty. I think, you know, you've got to have commitment. You've got to have extreme amounts of discipline, I think, to get anything done on this island because the sun is always shining. There's always a beautiful terrace to sit on, much like the one we're on now. You could gaze out to sea for hours and days on end, I think, pretty much anywhere from the top of Dark Villa into the distance. Um, and it's a hard place to get things done, Ibiza. So well done you on almost completing 20 books, 10 edits and 10 of your own which are some of which still a work in progress. And um, I've not had the pleasure, actually, of reading um, any of the ones that uh, you've personally written, but I know that you have edited uh, and helped write many of the ones that I have actually already read. Um, one, uh, if your readers uh, have short attention spans, I would recommend um, the Ibiza Walks, which, in which I contributed the, I think, about 30 essays on little facets of Ibiza's culture and history, because they're just a page or two long, each one, and I believe they will take you into um, into the heart and soul of Ibiza. Unfortunately, it's not a book I published myself. Uh, someone called Rob Smith did the. It's his um, it's his uh, work, and he he wrote the walks themselves. But my little essays there on the history and culture, I think, you know, take you just uh, I don't know a couple of hours, an hour just to read the whole lot. So um, that will certainly take you inside parts of Ibiza you might not otherwise have explored and then of course you can do the walks and I'm a great believer in walking as, uh, as the best way to 
to understand and, and um, what's the word, to feel Ibiza, to, to really feel its, its, its sort of rhythm and heartbeat. It's interesting because I think that was going to be my final question. You know, you have to, from the route I came down through the tunnel to park my car for free up and behind town, then you kind of come up that wonderful um, tunnel that brings you up to one of my favourite bars. And, you know, there's a lot of those little tunnels, like, all around Del Vila. And you kind of think, why is this tunnel here? Like, what was, you know, I, I like to think of it as this kind of pirate medieval time when everyone was kind of like these little escape routes but I know that you're just about to tell me or disagree with me because I can see it in your eyes well no I was going to say uh, something completely different that when Rob was doing the book he said can we have a, a route for Dalvila you know he wanted to do not just the country so I took him up this this route which is very different from the one you've come but it starts at the Porta de las Tablas at the uh, no yeah at the bottom and um, we come along all the little windy alleys um I don't think we did any tunnels, but the the alleys we 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 uh, threaded through were all very delightful and atmospheric. So you can come up practically all the way to the top, avoiding the main way, and it's a, it's a fun it's a fun route to do. Um, why did they have these um, um, kind of uh, tunnels? Well, part part of them partly it was to um, service the um, the bastions where they had the cannons, etc. So. As you're going down from from the cathedral square, you will see one of them with with various, um, I think, mannequins and cannons, etc. So, um, as for the bottom part, which goes down to the to the walls, I guess that would have been closed originally, but it was opened up after after the um, um, the threat of piracy disappeared, and so they you know they needed to get out to the windmills or whatever it was. Um, um, but it's a good question. I'm, next time I, I next time I talk to an expert, I'm going to ask. Because there's two tunnels really. There's Portal No. One of them is Portal No, the, the new gate that was very heavily defended anyway. That was actually a gate, um, the one which is by the um, the Saint Pere uh, Balouard, the the, uh, the west end of Ibiza. Uh, but the one here at the back below the cathedral, I, th- I guess that must have been closed up originally. Wouldn't have otherwise it would have been too easy to to storm. Yeah. It just intrigues me. It's kind of one of my favourite things is walking through those tunnels and imagining all the other people that have walked through there over the last God knows how many hundreds of years. It's kind of like a, you know, obviously much nicer than going into the, the tubes of London. You can kind of really get a sense of something major has gone down in those tunnels and I just would love to know what it could have been. Yeah, there was also, the, there's another tunnel connecting Santo Domingo Church, the, the town hall, with um, the car park behind the cathedral. And that... Um, Warden Sotofosk, it's known as the the dark Soto. Soto is the area behind the cathedral. So um, I'm not sure when that was built. That's a good question as well. I'm sorry, I can't help you then. But it would have been closed originally because otherwise, you know, it would have been away in town. So I imagine they opened up bits of the wall as the threat of piracy receded. And, and in fact, the walls, I must add this, were never used in in defence because um, once they were built, no one bothered to attack and beat the town. It was just impregnable. And it is one of the greatest Mediterranean fortresses ever built. So they are just just in themselves. They were a deterrent. What were you doing before you met your husband now? Were you writing back in England as well? 
I was yes I was actually I was writing a, a London diary but I was I was busy working on a um, a bibliography of Romanesque architecture which was published in America because yeah, I worked at the V&A Victorian Albert Museum and that was published just after I arrived in Ibiza um, but I've always been a scribbler secret scribbler so I was I was I'd, I'd done various things um, uh, but I was working in the National Art Library in the Victorian Albert Museum at the time that was my my day job we call it. <laughs> so you've always been a bit queer. Oh yes, yes, uh, yes. Right from the three little pigs onwards. <laughs> <laughs> Buzzy Bear Goes South was the very first book I ever read. Yes, I, I still remember it vividly. You've gone up in the world, Martin. <laughs> what am I reading now? Oh yes, The Cave and the Light. I can re- recommend that to your readers. The best book on on philosophy, art, and uh, history I think I've ever read amazing book by Arthur Herman so just reading about the artists in the 19th century at the moment pretty pretty good stuff and Karl Marx how he overturned their vision so um, that's a that's a book like Sapiens you know the great um, book by this uh, uh, Israeli historian which is storming the world um, two amazing books yeah I love I love reading history anything to do with art as well I, I, I'm very interested in the history of art that's one of my passions I think you're the only man that kind of scurries around uh, the villa with a with a little man bag and a big fat paper bag poking out of the of the side pocket, which I, you know doesn't surprise me at all, knowing you. But I think um, you know where is your little place in this town where you go to sort of reset and to read and to immerse yourself to get a little bit of peace and quiet and maybe have a coffee. Well, the the study which I mentioned earlier, where the where we had an ice skating rink <laughs> at one point when I was editing the road to San Vicente. Um, that is my, my secret haven um, and where I do my publishing. And it's, I used to live there with my partner and then we moved to another place and we kept on this as, as my, my sort of study and where Barbary Press, my publishing firm, is based. I also do teaching there. So um, it's my ivory tower. I'm quite, quite fond of it. So I even have things like record players and cassette decks there so I can listen to music as well when I want to unwind the old fashioned kind of music <laughs> well, well I think the word cassette sort of gave it away actually Martin <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a, I have a huge collection of cassettes um, which I take back in London in the 80s 90s, early 90s so I still listen to them I, I recorded them on this really high quality chrome tape and they're, they're still going strong it's amazing, 30 years probably when all the, all the, all the uh, CDs have crumble there will still be working <laughs> so where do you reside in lockdown in your library or back in your actual home with your partner do you hide away in your library both both um i would my my have my home uh, my flat not, not far from the, the the library and then the um i would try and go to the library every day to do some work yeah yeah but i wasn't uh, i was doing less teaching then so it was able to I was here, it freed up time to work on another project which I'm started on Elmi the Ori, which you can listen to on Will Will Beecham's podcast, um, Ebithology. So I've talked a bit about my research there, and it's come forward a bit since then as well. So that's another exciting project which I'm hope will will uh, will will do something shortly on. I tried to listen to that this morning, but it, I think it was recorded in lockdown, wasn't it? And the yeah. quality wasn't yeah. as good as the rest of his wonderful shows. And I'm a big, big, big fan of his podcast. Yeah. But um, I th- think that was... Um, I, I, listened, I listened to it. It was okay, actually. I thought it would be really bad because it was done by phone. And I, I did eventually listen to the whole thing. It, was, it wasn't so bad. Anyway, but perhaps, um, 
perhaps I don't know. I'll, I'll ask Will about that. But when I listened, it was fine. He's a he's a fantastic broadcaster, but he's a he's an you know he's a journalist. Is that a but? <laughs> no, you know, th- there's a reason he's got a great podcast because he's a journalist, and I think you know it's great that he's made that show. I'm delighted over the moon. You know, it's one of the ones that started up before the Reset Rebel even came on the scene. He's had that podcast for quite a while. Yes, and, and I think he's done a fantastic job contacting. Um, people who really do know about this island. Uh, there's a lot of very good historians here and um, people have done incredible work in the last 50 years. So he has homed in on them and got their story, including the Francisco Torres Peters, the, the historian I mentioned earlier, who's in charge of uh, the bells and stuff. Um, uh, he was talking a wonderful podcast about the history of the church on Ibiza. It was a real eye-opener, very, very nicely done. And he speaks very good English, of course, because of his mother. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, earlier we had a very good series of talks by um, organised by Maya. Um, um, oh, I can't remember her surname now. Uh, which, again, I, unfortunately weren't, weren't made into podcasts, but I think they, that was on the table at one stage. Um, so um, there's a lot of initiatives going on now to you might say steer visitors, tourists, residents um, of Ibiza whether they're from outside or or Spanish um, into this kind of cultural place because as I said earlier, it's just amazing, the culture of Ibiza and it it takes you deeper into the island story as well, helps you connect with whether it's wells or pirate towers (laughs) or, or the cathedral to, to the story of the island, its spirituality, its um, history, its uh, its people, their customs. So I think that's important. I mean, it's, it's why do you think it's such a spiritual place, then, Martin? What's your thoughts on that one? Um, silence. <laughs> well, I think one of the things which started to make it a spiritual place was the um, the friar uh, Pere Palau in the 19th century. I don't think it had been a very spiritual place up until then. But he he basically engineered a minor sort of um, religious re- revolution here in the 1860s, 1560s. And um, the peasants became very pious, the women especially, and church going became a big thing. So that was one, one side of Vibitha's, um spirituality. I mean, there's a whole Christian spirituality here, which, of course no one talk, ever talks about but um, just below us the in the church of Santo Domingo there's some very special chapels which are sacred to local you know Catholics um, so that side of spirituality which perhaps isn't so fashionable these days but it is a deep part of the island's you know being and culture um, uh, they, they were very for example in the civil war um, a lot of the priests were rounded up and shot here and their lists they're, they're, they're listed in, in the cathedral and it was a deeply shocking thing for the Ibithenkos because the people who shot them weren't weren't the Ibithenkos themselves. They were the anarchists who had come over from places like Valencia and Barcelona and had this deep hatred for the church, you know. But in Ibiza, these feelings weren't really shared, I don't think, uh, by by the vast majority of, of people on the island. So um, it was... Um, so in that way, Ibiza's different, you might say, from you know, the big cities or other places in Spain. It's a place where um, church-going was, was part of local life. Of course, that's all changed since the, since the tourist revolution. 
but that's one side of the spirituality you asked about, okay? <laughs> the non-hippie, non-tanit side. Um, the other kind of the, the new age spirituality, I think, has been imported by you know the foreigners who have been looking for meaning in their lives. They've come away from a, a perhaps a very materialistic world, uh, commercial world of of Europe and America, and looking for something so in a way they've created this new new age um, um, spirituality tanets a figure in there um, uh, all these um, astrolo astrology is a big thing on Ibiza I've noticed and so there, are, there is a whole you might say cluster of beliefs Buddha of course Buddha's everywhere in Ibiza <laughs> um, uh, so wh wh whatever you decide is your thing you will probably find, you know, a little a group or big or small on Ibiza who are going the same way and perhaps interested in in finding meaning um, beyond the the shopping mall <laughs> or the big yacht in the harbour. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think yeah, particularly at this moment in time, I think everyone's looking for a little bit of meaning, aren't they? More yeah, than usual. And also, of course, the clubbing movement. There was, a, I think, a sort of spiritual or quasi-spiritual aspect to that. People often. Um, felt when they were in these big gatherings that they were connected to humanity um, I, I always said yes but I hope they were remembering humanity just beyond the <laughs> the walls of the club who are having <laughs> weren't able to sleep <laughs> like my mother-in-law in San Rafael so it's all very nice to be connected to people dancing but if that means that you're kind of shitting on everyone all around that's not so nice so um, I think a, a, a genuine spirituality is you might say less um, about pleasure and more about I don't know duty connecting with community at large yeah I love those kind of words not right but what, what you should be put, putting back in yeah so I think we're, we're kind of in we're in the process of I think music probably is moving that way I don't know if, if you've, you've noticed a sort of a feeling that perhaps we should be going to somewhere which is more um, respectful of the environment and everything, yeah. 100 million percent, I, mean, I couldn't yeah. agree more, but I think for you to say that, you know, it's not fair on the residents, but ultimately if the Ibiza councils and, and, you know, the tourism board are encouraging people to come here and spend money and do that, you know, people aren't thinking about that, they're just doing what they're allowed to do, it's not illegal to go clubbing, and I, I'm with you, you know, I think there's two sides to the story, but ultimately... You know, you, you can't really kind of pour shame on the people that go to these places and, and have those spiritual experiences. And I do believe that, you know, a big part of spirituality can come in the dance community from that feeling of connection, connection to source and connection to, you know, the music and that moment and the people that are around you. I think big gatherings, not just clubbing gatherings, but, you know, any kind of like religious or spiritual community that exists here, of which there are a hell of a lot. And I think they come in all different shapes and forms and walks and you know varieties and that's what makes this island such an interesting one to walk in because I think everyone's very accepting to a degree as you've obviously shown as a very different uh, kind of spectrum of reality of what actually has gone down here in the past so it's interesting to have this conversation and, and I really appreciate you Can making I, the time for it. I mean I, I'm a spokesperson here because my views don't get aired very much you know I'm speaking here not for the paeses I mean I, I speak for my pupils they, they say the same thing as me but they don't they don't go on podcasts. We, we love people having a good time but we want them to have a good time you know which means people can still sleep at night can do their thing I mean that I think the right to sleep is an important one 
you love it? Are you loving the curfew then that's been impinged upon Delvia? Everyone says it's been heaven, especially people who are <laughs> who are artists and and like that. They 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 can go to bed at night. They can rediscover important things. So you might say. Being Europe's playground, it comes at a very heavy price, and we want—we don't want to pay that price as locals. We want—we're delighted to be a playground, but not um, uh, not without any limits. Let's say there, there has to be limits. Yeah. Martin Davies, thank you so much for talking to us here on the uh, well, a very cold stone bench opposite the cathedral. My bottom's gone numb, so I'm going to have to draw uh, today's wonderful conversation to a close. But I really, really, really enjoyed uh, having this conversation. My pleasure. You've been the most wonderful uh, questioner and also putting the other side of the, the coin, which is also important. Thank you. Thank you. It's the reset rebel It's the reset